Welcome back. You're listening to the front page edition of All Things Considered. I'm Lindsay Zients. And I'm Michael Higdon. The 2013 flu season is already starting, and cases are being reported all over the state. However, Paul Myers, administrator for Alachua County Health Department, says that Alachua County is only reporting a mild outbreak of the flu. Typically, we do see an increase in influenza and influenza-like illness activity during this time of the year. And fortunately, right now, I'm happy to report that Alachua County is reporting a mild uh, type of activity. And that means that there is uh, really scattered cases of influenza and with no increases in absenteeism or disruption of school activities. But that's not um, what we're seeing across the state. In fact, the state is reporting to the CDC widespread activity. So here in Alachua County, we're doing very well. However, Craig Ackerman, Public Information Officer for Marion County Health Department, says in Marion County the situation is different. Emergency rooms in Marion County have seen an increase in the number of people coming in complaining of influenza-like illness symptoms over the past several weeks. Flu is on the rise in the area, which is normal for this time of year. January and February is the peak flu season for our area. Last season was quite a light flu season. It was pretty mild, but this season appears to be uh, peaking early, and we could be uh, looking at a fairly difficult flu season ahead of us. Myers says that because there are so many students returning to Alachua County, getting the flu shot will be the best way to prevent catching the virus. The peak activity towards the end of January and into February. And so for that reason, it's extremely important for all of those returning students to ensure that they are vaccinated against the flu. Um, This year's flu shot is a very good fit for the circulating strain. So um, it's important to get vaccinated. It's, It's the best means of preventing infection. Ackerman adds that flu shots are still available. It is not too late to get a flu shot. The flu vaccine is widely available in Marion County and all across the state. Major drugstore chains offer the shots as well as pharmacies that are located in grocery stores and retail outlets. It's not too late to get the shot, and that is the best way to protect yourself from the flu. Meyer says everyone is susceptible, but there are select groups who should definitely get vaccinated. Those over the age of 65, their immune systems just aren't as strong as they used to be. Uh, Children uh, under the age of five are are susceptible, especially infants. And pregnant women are are susceptible as well to the flu. So it's very important for those groups to get vaccinated and also those who have uh, immune-compromised issues and those who have respiratory tract, upper respiratory tract compromises as well. Myers adds, if you are ill, the department is asking that you stay home. Ackerman says there are many things you can do to avoid getting the flu. To avoid getting the flu, uh, get the flu shot, absolutely. But also, uh, good hygiene is very, very helpful. Wash your hands often and thoroughly. If you have children, uh, supervise them washing their hands so they do so thoroughly. And try not to get other people sick. If you are sick, stay home. If you believe you have the flu, see your medical provider and cover your mouth when you uh, sneeze or cough to protect other people. Myers says washing your hands will not only prevent the flu from spreading, but will also prevent other illnesses that are spread that way as well. The pension issue is likely to come up again in this year's Florida lawmaking session. In the past, that discussion has mostly affected state government workers. But as Florida Public Radio's Tom Flanagan reports, local governments expect to enter the debate this go-around. 
When a think tank study is titled Trouble Ahead, it's a good bet it contains bad news. Back in September, the Leroy Collins Institute at Florida State University released its Trouble Ahead report on the pension issue. It showed that employee pensions now consume more of the state's local government budgets than previously thought. Combined with health insurance benefits for retirees, pension costs now eat up 8.1% of county spending, Florida's 50 largest cities are spending about 8.3% for the same thing. Perhaps most alarming is that pension contributions for public safety employees, such as police and fire, have nearly doubled over the past seven years. Scott Dudley is Legislative Affairs Director for the Florida League of Cities. It's a big worry for us in terms of the fiscal stability, not only of the cities, but a more important point is the fiscal stability of those police and firefighter pension plans. They are, it, it's unsustainable at the, at the current levels of spending and level of benefits. This is not a new problem. Dudley says it began in 1999. That's when the Florida legislature started what he calls meddling in the pension agreements local governments negotiated with police and firefighters. One legislative mandate, he says, forces excess pension fund payments to go towards extra benefits. And extra benefits include things like... Uh, you know, a 53rd pay week, a high multiplier for their retirement plan, or just a whole host of different variables out there in terms of, of what the extra benefits are. Bottom line, says Dudley, it's a big drain on the bottom line. They're costing local governments about 500 and something million dollars since 1999, uh, and that's taxpayer dollars, and it's hard for us to be stewards of the taxpayer's dollars when the legislature has dictated that we have to spend money in a certain way. And it's not only local government officials who dislike the state controls on their first responder pensions. Here's Metro Broward Professional Firefighters President John McNamara appearing before a state Senate committee a couple of years ago. A lot of our contracts with our employers have been negotiated on the notion that we were getting those type of benefits. And in turn, we tweaked our contracts to maybe receive less pay or less insurance benefits or maybe some uh, less lucrative vacation policies. The state's ongoing interference, McNamara said, often trumps those local agreements. Last year, Steve Cleland with the Orlando area local of the International Association of Firefighters expressed similar frustration as he stood outside a legislative hearing room. And what the state is trying to do is saying that we don't care what you collectively bargain we're going to decide what your benefit levels will be. So once again, local government and police and fire lobbyists will be working the legislature during the 2013 session. The League of Cities, Scott Dudley, is hopeful. Senator Jeremy Ring has already indicated that he is going to be putting a bill together on the Senate side that deals with local government pensions. I know Governor Scott has been helpful with respect to the Division of Retirement Services looking at the current law and trying to interpret it in a way that that makes more sense. Meanwhile, many of Florida's local governments will still be dealing with pension systems that are woefully underfunded. The Collins Institute Trouble Ahead study says counties are only investing about 40% of what they should in their pension funds. Cities are paying in around 30% of what they need to. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Tom Flanagan. Marion County Animal Services has previously abused horses available for adoption. Marion County Public Information Specialist Elaine McLean says she hopes the animals can find better homes. These horses are from several animal cruelty cases. Nine of the horses were removed from Guardian Angels Horse Rescue back in late September 2012. 
These horses were in really bad condition. They were as much as 300 pounds underweight and had hoof skin um, and teeth problems as well. Uh, now the other horses came from two other cruelty cases. Animal Services went through the court system and filed for custody. The court did grant custody to Animal Services, so now these horses are able to be adopted out and find good homes. McLean adds the horses interact well with humans. Okay, nine of the horses from the Guardian Angels Horse Rescue that we removed back in late September have been ridden before. However, staff is not sure exactly what they're able to do, but we know they have been ridden. The other three from the other two cruelty cases, we're also not sure of their abilities. All the horses are handleable. They're very sweet, very gentle, and they enjoy being around other horses and people. McLean says those wishing to adopt must remember that taking care of a horse is a hefty responsibility. Animal Services would encourage residents who are interested in adopting the horses to set up an appointment with Animal Services, and they can go out and visit the horses and get to know them and see if one of them would be a good fit for their farm. Now, we do want to remind people that horses, even though the adoption fee is relatively low, horses are a time-consuming and expensive commitment. So just keep that in mind when considering adopting a horse. McLean adds these horses may be different from those that come from proper homes. These horses have been through a lot. They are part of cruelty cases, so they will take some extra patience and care. Through the time being in animal services care, they have been brought back up to weight and received the proper nutrition and veterinary care that they have needed. But just keep in mind, they are from cruelty cases, and they will require a little extra patience. McLean says they are $125 to adopt and says anyone is welcome to adopt one of the horses. Anyone who is interested in adopting a horse can visit our website and check out their pictures and information. And that's marioncountyfl.org slash animalservices.htm or our Facebook page, facebook.com slash services. And if they see new horses that they like, give us a call, set up an appointment to visit and possibly bring home a new best friend. McLean hopes citizens will reach out if they are interested and help these animals in need. It can be hard to find a good place for children, teens, and adults to come together to better their lives in the city of Gainesville. But, as Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Danny Gibble reports, a community center's expansion could help create that place. As cars drive by downtown Gainesville, past the bars and nightclubs, a little community center is making big improvements. The Porter's Community Center has been in the city of Gainesville for many years now, trying to create an atmosphere of helping people. Recreational aide Kenneth Ross has been working at Porter's for over a year, but he has lived in the city of Gainesville on and off for 30 years. He says the center has really helped in a positive way for the community. Now, when I, when I first came here in this community, long before I started uh, working in the center, you know, I, I noticed that the community was a little bit uh, in disarray. And, and with the help of the, the city of Gainesville, you know, like uh, police officers and things like that, that because it had a, the stigma that it was a... Um, place where mostly drugs and things of that nature was, was um, sold and, and cohabited. Now, um, since I've been over here from the past time, um, it, the atmosphere, everything has changed. And I think a lot of that got to do with the, with the, with the center. 
Ross says before he started working there, people were scared to leave their kids at the center. So he took it upon himself to change their minds. Because when I first got here, a lot of the parents, they didn't really didn't care for their kids to, to come out or to come around the center or what have you because they didn't feel safe. And But I made it a point for me to walk around throughout the community and let them know that this is a safe haven and, and my main objective is for the welfare of the kids. And I need to get as many of them in here as I can because we can do things as far as like helping them with their homework, you know, teaching them how to, how to play better, do play together, getting them involved in different activities. Ross is doing his part to help the children and president at Porter's Community Neighborhood Organization, Gigi Simmons, got the expansion process going. She says increasing the children's library is a big task they are trying to accomplish. This room is the children's library and it's going to be geared towards the elementary age kids. Um, what we plan on doing is actually redoing the whole library. We're going to put in new books, um, put in uh, several small reading tables, the smaller desks where the younger children can sit and also have the lower um, computer desk where they can have, we're going to put two computers in this room as well as tables for learning, more like a homework room, after school room. And then during the daytime, um, hopefully parents with smaller children could come in from the community and we'll probably have reading sessions and storytelling, things like that. Simmons says the Porter's Community Center needs a new image, so they are doing renovations to make it more inviting. And we're going to have this part where they are currently located as our team lounge. And what we're going to do is, as you can see, this is the front door that leads into the building. And when you walk in, you see big bulky machines. And, you know, we want to, we're trying to change the image, you know. And once we use, get rid of those and have this open space, we're wanting to put um, two or three TVs on the walls for the kids can have their video games, the Xboxes, and put a couple of sofas. So it's almost like a lounge area. They are hoping that the improvements will help bring kids into the building. But a project Ross has been working on is designed to get them out. He has been working with the Gainesville Police Department to bring in bicycles that were left throughout the city for the children to use. Ross thinks getting the kids out of the neighborhood can be an uplifting experience. And also, you know, like I take them to, um, you know, like places like the University of Orange and Blue Games and stuff mm -hmm. like that. I, I try to expose them to colleges and, and encourage them, let them know that you have the opportunity to do the same things. And I think exposing them to that and letting them see, you know, like kids of their own, because the majority of the kids here are African-Americans. And if they see their own kind in colleges and universities, and, and the kids from the university that come here and visit, they're more apt to consider going to school. The community center and the biking around town also helps to give the kids exercise. Dr. John Spangler is a professor at the University of Florida in the Department of Tourism and Recreation. He says a very important aspect of parks and community centers is for the use of exercise. A place for people to be active within communities and this is um, um, understood by many authoritative groups such as the 
Centers for Disease, Disease Control and Prevention, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Safe Routes to School National Partnership, the American Heart Association are, are, are on board with um, finding ways to help prevent and reduce childhood obesity. And uh, parks are a good place for kids to be active, for people and communities to be active, um, and help us address this issue um, in our country. The center's expansion program is not only geared to help children. Simmons says the creation of a new computer lab can really help teens and adults better their lives. We're moving this into our resource room where we're going to add additional five computers, so we'll have a total of ten. That room will be for research resources for the older kids, high school kids, the people in the community that want to do job searches, GED teaching. We have, we're going to have a GED program in, that, in the other room, the resource room. Um, it just, it's just basically for the older people that want to come in, find a job, whatever, whatever they need to do is going to be provided for them in that room, the older people. Porter's Community Center is still in the beginning phases of its expansion and the staff hopes that the community can come together by donating supplies or time to really make it a great place in the community. For Florida's 89.1 WUFT-FM, I'm Danny Gibble in Gainesville. Welcome back. With the American Academy of Pediatrics recommending breastfeeding, it is on the rise. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Dana Winter investigates how the mother's milk has antibodies that help fight off viruses and bacteria, as well as reducing the risk of asthma and other allergies. He's saying nummy num. He's asking to be nursed. I'm not going to nurse him right now because we're we're kind of like this whole teething thing is a little bit. He's saying he signs please. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it just it pain it pains me to see him like ask for it and for me to not be able to here you go sweetie with so many studies out about benefits of breastfeeding groups like la leche league are there to support these groups bring mothers together to help each other on a peer-to-peer -peer basis they also assist mothers in helping find proper help to any questions they may have about their baby La Leche League of Gainesville leader Kathy Lemons says being able to talk to other mothers can ease fears. I think um, especially because there's this sort of comfort level knowing that people have gone through the same sort of thing that you've been through. And so there's sort of that camaraderie and that sort of that peer encouragement I think is really, really nice. Um, we are not experts, but we have experience as leaders. And even other moms you know, who come to the meetings, they offer their support and that sort of thing. So yeah, it sort of feels a lot of friendships are formed through the group and everything because of that. I think it's just really nice to have that peer support. She adds La Leche League holds monthly meetings that are open to the public. Full-time mom, certified lactation counselor, and part-time student at the University of Florida, Jessica Puentes explains her birth experience. When I was pregnant, like I, I initially was going to receive care actually at North Florida, and then I realized that it was still a very medically oriented hospital-oriented environment because there were there are midwives there, but I still I, it still wasn't what I was looking for. I went to the birth center. I fell in love with it. She continues talking about how she loved her experience there. After the birth of her son, things weren't initially as easy. Puenta says her nurse tried to get her to supplement formula, saying she wasn't producing enough milk. She talks about complications breastfeeding. 
when we initially began our breastfeeding journey, if you will, uh, where it was really rough and it was really painful because his latch was horrible, horrible. And I was in pain. I saw three different lactation consultants, you know, and I recently helped somebody and I, and I think that she thought that I was going to be her saving grace and that I was going to help with her issue. And that wasn't the case. She actually needed to be seen by somebody else. Every situation is unique and has its own set of problems. But she adds support from friends and family help encourage mothers to continue. Fuentes talks about how mothers can increase their milk supply and not need to supplement with formula. You have to latch the baby on at every opportunity and not supplement with anything else because you are, you are telling your body to essentially wean because every time he latches on, my, my, my body will produce the hormone prolactin and it tells my body to make milk and that those levels peak with every, with every breastfeeding session. That's number one. Number two would be to power pump and power pumping is essentially that same idea of increasing the prolactin. Puentes then explains how to power pump. She also discusses there are milk banks that screen donated breast milk test it, pasteurize it, and provide it to mothers who cannot produce enough milk. She explains how this is a safer option for both the baby and the mother than milk sharing, giving one mother's baby to another mother to feed. But there are some mothers who would rather milk share than give their babies any formula. Groups like Human Milk for Human Babies match up mothers who are looking to milk share rather than get it from a milk bank. These groups don't screen and test their milk like banks do, but members may request blood work and tests from the donor mother. Puentes says within La Leche League, mothers share insightful hints to breastfeeding. This is something that might go around La Leche League or the whole mother-to-mother mo approach where things are more anecdotal. It's like, in my experience, this is what works for me, so you may try this. But to a professional capacity, it's not within my scope to prescribe. But mothers will say, try mother's milk tea or try fenugreek or try fennel. And then those things are blessed thistle. And there's a, there's a couple of other things out there that are said to increase milk supply. Um, some mothers will say, yeah, I had mother's milk tea, and the next morning I woke up and I felt full. And I was so glad because then I could breastfeed my son. <laughs> he just bumped his head. You okay, Poppy? <laughs> I think he's also tired. According to Puentes, breastfeeding can reduce the risk of diabetes and heart problems in babies. Lemons explains how La Leche League helps mothers. I think it's really helpful to hear um, when, you're, when you're going through a situation where things are difficult or haven't gone the way that you anticipated they were going to go, to hear other moms who have also faced those difficulties, or even to just ask an experienced mom, you know, where do I get information about how to fix this problem or how do I move on through this issue? And we can do that. We, su we support, I mean, we provide them um, with information and any educational materials that they might need. She adds they make home visits upon request and mothers can always call leaders of the group if they need any help. One question that often arises is not only what the baby gets out of breastfeeding, but also how it helps the mother. Puentes explains the health benefits for mothers. It's better for us too because um, there are studies that show that we are less likely to have, we women that is, are less likely to have ovarian cancer, uterine cancer, and breast cancer when we breastfeed. And it also helps bring the uterus back to their normal size. Uh, pre-pregnancy after birth. Whether getting help from a lactation counselor or an organization like La Leche Group, now more than ever there is more help for breastfeeding. With groups like this across the entire United States, mothers can find aid virtually anywhere. Groups exist almost everywhere from big cities like Duluth, Minnesota to smaller cities like Gainesville, Florida. There are also many groups existing on a statewide basis via Facebook pages. For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Dana Winter reporting.
Florida law requires drivers to move over if they are approaching a law enforcement or emergency vehicle parked on the side of the road with lights flashing. And the Florida Highway Patrol says during January, it's going to do what it can to make sure people understand that law. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Forrest Smith talked with Florida Highway Patrol Captain Nancy Rasmussen in Tallahassee about why it's important that a driver know when it's time to move over. Explain step-by-step what a driver should do if they're driving along on a road and they see those flashing lights up ahead from a law enforcement officer. Well, what the law requires is that you move over, which so if the law enforcement officer is on the right-hand shoulder on either a traffic stop or assisting a disabled vehicle or, or whatever the officer is doing or any emergency vehicle, you need to move from the lane that's closest to them. So you need to move over to the left and have a lane width dividing the traffic and the trooper. And if you can't do that safely, let's say if there's a lot of vehicles that are on the roadways where you can't move over, then you need to slow your speed down to 20 miles an hour below the posted speed limit just so you know that you're approaching, you're driving a little slower, and you're using caution with the trooper or law enforcement officer that's on the side of the road. Now what if the officer's in the the left-hand lane stopped? Then, then um, if they're in the inside median area, then move to the right. So all, all, all the law requires is that you provide a lane between the officer, and, and it also specifically states that you need to do it if you can do it safely. So if there's a lot of traffic around, then the next best thing is just to slow down 20 miles an hour below the posted speed limit. And the penalties for violation are what? It's a three point. It's a moving violation, so it's three points on your driver's license and fines assessed. And the fines uh, depend on what county you're in. So every county, the fines are just a little different because of the clerk of the courts and how they have their fines assessed. Now, this law is not on the books just to look nice. Tell us about some of the instances in the past year where violation of this of this law caused problems for law enforcement officers. Well, with FHP alone, we've had four troopers um, that were involved in collisions that were basically because somebody didn't move off the, um, get out of the way and move over for safety. Um, In early of last year, January, we had two officers that were involved with crashes. One, they were both, uh, one was working a traffic stop, one was working a crash, um, David Rodriguez, he's a trooper out of Orlando area, and he he's a motor unit in that area and was um, struck by a vehicle, which ended up him in the hospital. And his crash was January 26th of last year, and he still has not come back to the road. Uh, the other one was just a minor crash, and, the, and there was no injuries involved, which was thankful. Um, in February of last year, Daniel Morley, which we have a video of through his dash cam, was hit with the mirror of another vehicle and uh, when he was conducting a traffic stop. And then our last one last year was Felicia Andrews, who is still uh, seriously injured and in the hospital still. Now, in the past, we've had troopers injured a lot worse than this. And has the law, from your perspective, actually helped prevent some of these crashes like you've seen in the past? I think it deters quite a bit only because when you're out driving, you do see a lot of motorists abiding by it. They're moving. And, and even when you're driving down the road, 
and you have a disabled vehicle or a motorist that stops on a, a lot of cars do get over in this just human nature and it's getting to be a natural thing but there's still um because of all the roads and the congestions of the traffics um it does make a significant help for the in, troopers and the law enforcement that are on the side of the road because it it's out there it's something on the books that are protecting them from getting um struck by a vehicle on the side of the road that was WUFTFM's Forrest Smith talking with Captain Nancy Rasmussen of the Florida Highway Patrol State Office in Tallahassee. A new report by the Florida Department of Highway Safety says crashes at intersections with red lights cameras are down. As Florida Public Radio's Lynn Hatter reports, the findings may bolster the case for more cameras. According to the state's new report, around half of responding law enforcement agencies say crashes at intersections with red light cameras are down. Between July 2011 and June 2012, almost a million red light camera tickets were issued. Most people paid them. But for the 20,000 folks who chose to challenge their citations, about 70 percent of them were dismissed. The study also found drivers are being a lot more careful these days. In intersections without the cameras, fewer people ran red lights and stop signs. The state gets about $70 for every ticket issued, and the tickets range from about $150 to $200. In the last few years, some lawmakers have tried to reduce the role and presence of the cameras, and Democratic State Representative Daphne Campbell has filed a bill this year to remove them. The Florida League of Cities issued a statement in support of the cameras. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Lynn Hatter in Tallahassee. There was a time when girls in high school would take home economics, learning to cook, sew, and other basic homemaking skills. Times have changed. The closest thing to home ec in local high schools is now called nutrition and wellness, and even it's in danger of extinction. In this class, students learn the basics of cooking, working in the kitchen, and nutrition, tasks that can be used every day. But as Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's April Lanuza found out, the move to modern school curriculums and job-based classes is slowly pushing this class away. You know, it's very awesome, you know, all the little sprinkles on here. You know, it came out good, you know. No matter how old you are, a cookie always tastes best warm from the oven. Some students from Gainesville High School use their nutrition and wellness class to learn the basics of cooking, an option few Alachua County schools still have. The lesson for this class, how to make sugar cookies. Nutrition and wellness, a class once called home economics, was made up of cooking, sewing, and childcare, the traditional qualities needed to take care of a home. It is now mainly a class where students do bookwork and hands-on cooking under the Family Youth Sciences category. Few schools in Alachua County have the nutrition and wellness class remaining, one of them being Gainesville High School. Nutrition and wellness teacher Don Becker says her class teaches students basic home skills, which aren't necessarily needed to get a job in the real world, possibly leading to the eventual disappearance of this class. The problem is, is there's not the funding for it that there used to be. A lot of the money nowadays is going into career programs that provide job training and that have certification in the industry. But that's where vocational education seems to be migrating. If it does not have direct ties to a job in the, in the field where you can come out with a certificate or some sort of training, it's kind of going along the wayside. But it's not just the budget cuts to the department or change to school curriculums. It's a lack of teachers as well. As home economics teachers retire, fewer are coming in to replace them. Becker has been teaching the class for seven years, and in that time, the traditional components of the class have disappeared. Since then, 
we're down to now just the cooking class. The parenting has gone by the wayside. The sewing has gone by the wayside as um, home economics teachers have retired because new, newer teachers are not coming into this profession. Um, I'm probably one of the youngest home economics teachers in Alachua County, and I'm, this is actually a second career for me. The home economics class does more than just teach students how to cook. I know more now than I did coming in. It teaches the skills needed for everyday life, like balancing a checkbook and nutrition. It is also no longer a class just for women, but rather both genders. Family Youth Sciences professor at the University of Florida, Linda Bobroff, thinks all schools should have this program because everyone can benefit. And I think it's a really sad thing that there isn't family consumer sciences in all of the schools, and I think that all of the kids, not just the girls, but the guys should take it too. A lot of guys end up at some point in their lives living alone. So they need basic food preparation skills. They need to know how to sew on a button. Even with the need for more core curricula classes, students who have the option take this class because they love to eat and what they learn can actually help at the end of the school day. Because like when I'm at the house and when I think about making cookies, yeah, when I think about making cookies, she taught us how to make cookies from scratch. So it's really good help for, you know, useful at home. Taught me how to like not cross contaminate and you know to use separate cutting boards for separate things and like cook things in different pans and pots. Stuff that I didn't really know how to do before, but now I know like how to cook better and avoid getting sick. When I go home, you know, when it's grubbing time, I go in the kitchen and just make something that I learned from this class. I do it step by step, the instruction or the recipe that Ms. Becker gave us. Over the years, home economics has transformed into a completely different class than what it originally was. The curriculum changes, the class sizes shrink, and the money needed decreases with the amount of students enrolled, all leading to what will eventually be an empty space where this class used to exist. For Florida's 89.1 WUFT-FM, I'm April Lanuza. Gas prices are inching up from last week. AAA spokeswoman Jessica Brady says the trend will continue until mid to late January, and then it is likely that prices will start to retreat. We tend to see prices go up about this time of year, um, usually the last week of December throughout early to mid-January, on optimism that you know we're going to see more economic growth in the new year, that fuel demand is going to increase. And then also this year you tackle on um, the resolution plan for, to avoid the fiscal cliff. That also spawns some more optimism out there, which has led to an increase in both oil and gas prices. However, fuel demand has not increased. Um, we're still seeing pretty lackluster numbers at a time when gasoline stockpiles continue to increase. So I think as the month progresses, we'll see prices start to fall or at least stabilize. Brady adds that because of the market, changes can happen suddenly. There are a lot of different factors that could change that. Um, you know, the market has been and is very likely to continue to be a volatile one, meaning we can see changes at a whim. Um, but, you know, this usually is a time of year that we do see uh, lower gas prices with, you know, the, the travel season being over, kids being back in school, it's the dead of winter. So we do see lower prices. Um, so it is very likely that we could see prices fall at the end of the month. Brady says that because we ended 2012 with a very high average, the 2013 average was started higher than normal. 
As of December 31, 2012, a new excise tax will be implemented on the sale of taxable medical devices. Medical device company Exact Tech employs almost 400 people here in Alachua County. President of Exact Tech, David Petty, says this tax is not going to be beneficial for these companies. We're going to be paying, based on an estimate of our total domestic sales for 2013, we will actually pay out approximately $3.6 million in additional taxes. And it's because of that extra cost of the medical device excise tax that we will be unable to expand as we otherwise would have if we did not have to pay this additional tax. With the new tax in place, medical device sales will be taxed at a rate of 2.3%. Petty says having to pay more money will affect the growth of the company. We're going to be paying, based on an estimate of our total domestic sales for 2013, we will actually pay out approximately $3.6 million in additional taxes. And it's because of that extra cost of the medical device excise tax that we will be unable to expand as we otherwise would have if we did not have to pay this additional tax. After the Supreme Court affirmed the legality of the medical device excise tax, Petty says medical device companies had to start making cuts in other ways. We had 26 open positions uh, scheduled to be hired. In June, we eliminated roughly two-thirds of those positions. Now, that is different from our competitors in other parts of the country that actually have laid off thousands of people, in part in order to, to pay for this, for this tax. Petty adds that Exact Tech will continue to try their hardest to protect the jobs of their employees, even with the new tax. Thanks for tuning in to the front page edition of All Things Considered. This has been a broadcast of Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. I'm Lindsay Zions. And I'm Michael Higdon. 